listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So it's great to be back here and an honor to be um, presenting God's Word to you. We've been, we jumped back into Luke a couple of weeks ago, and so if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we'll be reading through verses 28 through 50 today. And while you're doing that, let's remind ourselves of where we are in chapter 9 of Luke. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus has called the twelve together. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So they're on this mission. They're going to go and they're going to preach and they're going to go and they're going to heal people. That's what he tells them to do at the beginning of chapter 9. Go through the village after some further directions. They go through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They return and Jesus withdraws with them. Jesus speaks and heals people in the crowd. The disciples want Jesus to send them away. They want their time with him. Imagine that, your your hero, your, your master, your Lord, your teacher has told you, go and do this, go and teach, go and heal, and you get back and you never get to sit down with him and say, oh, well, this happened, and well, tell me about this, why didn't this work, or what could I have done better here? They never had that time back with him to just relax and say, um, I don't know, get approval or get feedback from them, but immediately they're faced with that crowd that we saw. They want their time. He has these disciples serve the people instead of monopolizing his time and sending them away. Afterward, Jesus is praying and a conversation with the disciples occurs. Peter responds to a question by saying Jesus is the Christ. We see that in verse 20. Then Jesus says, do not tell anyone. Certain things must happen and foretells of his death. Then Jesus speaks about what it means to follow him like we saw last week. Losing your life. Losing your agenda for his sake. Now we pick up in verse 28. So let's read verse 28 through 50 together. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is least among you all, is the one who is great. And we finish with verse 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would take these words, Father, that you would take our efforts to understand them. Father, transform us. Help us to understand your heart behind these words. Father, I pray for clarity of speech. Father, and to speak only the words that you would have me to speak today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the main point of today, the thing I want you to take away most of all, is that pride promotes exclusivity and humility promotes unity. So when I got this passage, I saw the very first subtitle, The Transfiguration. I was like, this is going to be interesting. How do you explain this? It's been, uh, it's been fun. So in 30, 28 through 36, we just have read through some of that or all of that. So let's think about what's going on. Jesus is up on the mountain with these disciples, Peter, John, and James. And we see this appearance of his face was altered. That must have been scary, except they were asleep. Um, Jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh to reveal a brief glimpse of his divine glory. Look at it again. We see the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing was dazzling white. 
What is that all about? So, well, there were two other men with them, Moses and Elijah. I, growing up all my years, I just kind of thought that was weird. Why are these guys standing there with them? What are they doing? They appeared in glory as well. The splendor of their glorified bodies. So they're, these three guys are standing around and they're, they're talking to each other. And what are they talking about? Jesus' departure. Now again, remember, we've already been taught. The people at this time are thinking Jesus is coming as this political leader. He's going to accomplish his kingdom here on this earth. Okay? But Moses and Elijah are meeting with Jesus and they're simply talking about his departure. Which is what? It's going to be his death, right? He's going to die on the cross. This is what's going to happen. To talk about Moses and Elijah a little bit, why them? Why not somebody else? Why not just two random guys? Moses was the greatest and most revered leader in the history of Israel, the one who led them out of slavery. The man who in Exodus 3.11 says... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And later God uses him to do exactly that. Do we see the humility in Moses? God has called Moses saying, go free my people. Go and say this to Pharaoh. Remember his humble beginnings? He's put in a basket and sent down the river. And Moses is like, me? And God uses him exactly to do that. Elijah was one of the greatest and most respected prophets. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, we see more about him. We, will see, we see Elijah cry out to the Lord. Specifically, I want to read 1 Kings 18, verses 36 and 37 to us. Listen to what Elijah actually does and how he does it. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the donation... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Why? That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice how Elijah reflects all of the glory to the Lord. He doesn't say that so that these people will think I'm great or so that they will follow me. And he cries out to the Lord. Moses gave the law. Elijah guarded it. These two guys are highly regarded, not just random, unidentified men. And they've been in the presence of God since their departures from this, from this earth, from this world. They understood the plan of redemption. They've passed away. They're in heaven. Well, one of them passed away. One of them was just kind of taken up. And they're in, they're in heaven with the Lord, worshiping him. What are they worshiping? What, what, why are they giving him worth? Because they know what he's about to do. And so they've come, and they're talking with Jesus about that. So what's going on with Peter, James, and John during this time? It says they were heavy with sleep. Stop judging. I know about all the other verses where the guys were asleep. Look what it says. They were with him. They were heavy with sleep. Um, but when they became fully awake, um, 
The verb tense here implies that their falling asleep was involuntary. God used that in their lives. God put them to sleep and he wakes them up. They were never criticized or rebuked for being asleep. We see that in other places in the garden. But in this place, they were never rebuked for sleeping. Jesus brought them there to witness his glory, to reveal himself to them, to strengthen them, and to encourage them. When God reveals, when Jesus reveals who he is to you and to me, it does all of those exact same things. It strengthens us. It encourages us. I'm imagining them beginning to wake up, rubbing their eyes a little bit. And when they fully awaken, they see his glory and the two men standing with them. I bet that was quite a surprise. Moses and Elijah do not converse with the disciples. Moses doesn't go over to them and say, all right, guys, let me explain everything to you. Elijah doesn't come over there to them and say, let me explain this to you guys. Since you're not going to listen to Jesus, just listen to us. You know who we are. You've read about us for years. It says they did. They walked away. As soon as the men were parting from him, now Peter wants to talk to Jesus. So these men just walk away. The two men were leaving. And what is Peter's response? Does he fall down in worship? Does he have questions? Jesus, what is going on? What was that all about? We see some pride. Peter says to Jesus, as rash as he is with his decisions. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So somehow the identities of these men were revealed to them. His suggestion might have been well meant, but it was off target. What did he, was he, what was he up to? By making the tents, he wanted to make this permanent. You don't set up a tent in those days for an afternoon chat for a couple hours of chatting. The tents are where you reside. By making the tents, he wanted to make his situation permanent and by implication, bypassing the cross. He doesn't understand that the cross is coming up and that's the plan for Jesus' departure. Life is great, just like this. We're up on this mountain we're here with Jesus, Jesus and the three of us. You spend time with somebody who you respect and value and you have this great time with him. It's like, man, he brought us up here. Can it always be like this? Can it always be like beach camp and shine weekend? Why isn't every weekend like this? Oh, this conference we went to. G3 or I don't know the names of the others, okay? Why, why can't every week be like this? Why can't every Wednesday through Saturday be like this? This can be the beginning of his kingdom. We set up these tents here, and Jesus can develop his plans with Moses and Elijah up here, and we'll be like right up there with him. He'll come and he'll conquer and give us what we want. who's relying on his own wisdom instead of the wisdom of Jesus. As these words are still coming out of his mouth, let me, hey, let's build these tents. 
a cloud comes and overshadows them. We know from the Old Testament a cloud is often represented, it's a representation of God's presence. And we see that in this case too it is. God interrupts Peter's idea pretty quickly. Just to reread over that. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. The only reason they would be afraid because they knew it was God's presence. As I was studying this, there were lots of implications of this part. Look at what God says audibly, out loud to these men. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It wasn't, hey guys, it's probably a really good idea if you guys listen to him. I don't know what God sounds like audibly. This sounds pretty corrective, and this is pretty direct and to the point. I don't know even how to symbolize the voice of the Lord, try to imitate it. But again, you got to put it in the context. These guys, Moses and Elijah, were just here talking with Jesus about his departure. The plan that Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit have been planning from eternity past. This is how we're going to redeem people. Peter wants to build tents and do it this other way. And God's correcting him saying, listen. This is who you're talking to. This is who you're talking about. This is my son, my chosen one. My chosen one for what? To redeem the world. Our way, not your way. Listen to him. Peter, stop talking. School teachers know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Thanks. There we go. And giving your self-centered ideas to this man. Peter, stop. Listen to this man. You don't have to figure this out. We've got it all figured out. This man is my son. This guy that you're trying to conform into what you want out of him. You want him to serve you and raise you up into these high positions. That's not what's about to happen. I have chosen him to build my kingdom, and we will be doing that my way, is the way I would paraphrase that. It's interesting, in the New Testament, it, God only speaks out loud a few times. We hear it at Jesus' baptism, and here's one of the other places. What does he say at the baptism? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And here he's saying, this is my son again. Every time God speaks audibly in the New Testament, it's to give credibility that this is, Jesus is God's son. The voice speaks. Moses and Elijah are gone to avoid any confusion about who God is talking about. And the disciples kept silent. In the parallel passage in Matthew 17, 9, Jesus instructed them to keep silent about this vision until he was raised from the dead. Hmm. So it wasn't just, okay, I was put in my place. I put my head down in shame and I'm silent. But Jesus, as they're walking back down the mountain, Jesus, guys, don't talk about this with anybody until I've been raised from the dead. So what's the application for the transfiguration to our lives? 
we read it and we're like, that's kind of weird with this being trans, the appearance and these guys speaking in the cloud. Is it self-centered for us to stay in our little circles and to attempt God's attempt to build God's kingdom our way? Do we try to get clever? I got this figured out. Do we intentionally or unintentionally reduce the need for the cross? Jesus' death as we share truth with people. We want them to accept it. We want them to hear it. So we just kind of lighten the need for the cross. We don't highlight that as much. Let's continue with the healing in 37 through 45. We read it earlier. Let's think about what's going on. The three disciples have just had this incredible experience at the top of the mountain. They saw the glory of Christ and were spoken to by God the Father. And they go down the mountain and immediately encounter a great crowd. And I can only imagine this man coming to them, working his way through the crowd. I have an only child. His son was an only child. I cannot imagine this situation. He is tortured by a demon. Parents, your son or your daughter is tortured by a demon. The other gospels give more details. In Matthew 17, 15, it tells us that he is an epileptic. He suffers terribly. He falls into fire. He falls into water. He's mute. He's thrown down. He foams at his mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. And this has been happening since childhood. Wow. The desperation of the man. He knew who to go to, and he was willing to work through that crowd. And he comes and he says, Jesus, I asked the disciples to do it, and they couldn't do it. Jesus' reply is confusing to us. In verse 41, he answers them. His answer is directed at the disciples, not, his, not the boy's father. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. That's funny. Um, <laughs> it just is. I wouldn't be able to make their way back, so I'm stalling and finding my place at the same time. They're in unison, too. Mark chapter 9, 28 through 30 is a follow-up. The disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus, what's the deal? Why couldn't we have cast that demon out? You sent us on this mission, right? Go and preach. Go and heal people. And we try to go and heal this guy. Our hearts go out to this boy's father, and we couldn't cast it out. I thought you were supposed to equip us to do this stuff. 
would have been my attitude. Jesus says in verse 29, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's a strange answer to me. So back up for a minute. The disciples out on their tour of speaking and healing, they can't heal this one. Then we fast forward. Why couldn't we cast it out, Jesus? This kind can only be done with prayer. What does that imply? Were the, were the disciples, were they going around just kind of like, you know, just in the name of Jesus be healed? Was it nonchalant? Was it, it just happened so easily because Jesus hasn't empowered them to do it? Were they relying on Jesus' strength? Matthew 17, 20, the answer continues with, because of your little faith. That's why he answers here, O faithless and twisted generation. You prayed and you didn't have faith. For truly I say to you, if you have, this is continuing in Matthew 17, 20. I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. What mountain? The Himalayan mountains? Remember how big of a problem the guy, the demon was? We just read through it. Epileptic, suffers, falls into fire, falls into water, mute, thrown down, foams at the mouth, grinds teeth, becomes rigid since childhood. That mountain. If you had just a little bit of faith as you tried to heal this boy, the mountain would have moved. And then he finishes his answer with and just a quick sentence to the man's to the boy's father, bring your son here. Think back to Elijah's crying out to the Lord that we read earlier. Jesus is teaching them to pray with faith. Faith is more than just a hope. And God, I hope you answer this one. Faith is a supernatural confidence in who God is and what he will do. We're scared to pray that way because we don't know if it's God's will or not. How many of my prayers have been, God, if it would be your will, please heal this person. It seems kind of nonchalant and kind of casual, doesn't it? So for you and for me, have you ever cried out to the Lord in your prayer? I mean, cry out. With a supernatural confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. Not for your glory, not to get your way, so that you would know, so that the people involved in that situation would know who God is. That's the motivation behind our prayer, should be. When you combine these answers together, Faith isn't just a belief. 
To trust in the Lord or to have confidence in Him requires the disciples and it requires you and me to plead with Him in prayer to act on His own behalf. God's going to do what He's going to do, right? But He uses the prayers of His people in doing that. What an honor that He would include you and me to cry out to Him and pour our hearts out to Him and plead with Him to accomplish His will in this person's life, in that person's life, in this situation. We must admit and confess that each situation can only be redeemed by Him. Not our wise words or our convincing arguments. So when we pray for Aaron Bruski, hospital twice and double pneumonia and all the stuff that is, his body's struggling. When I cry out to the Lord, when things are going on in our own body, do I cry out to the Lord? God, make yourself known in this situation. Not just heal this person so there's this peace in my own mind here on earth. What's my motivation? To have my own way or that God would be exalted in it? God, help my unbelief. I want to pray for Aaron. If I ever pleaded with the Lord in a way that it's not just for Aaron's sake. Yes, that's part of it, that he would be healed. But when I plead with the Lord, am I pleading with the Lord that he would heal Aaron and the people in Romania at that hospital and the people that he's ministered to him would be amazed at what God has done in the Aaron's body and would know that God is who he says he is. The things that Aaron has said over the years. Is that what I'm pleading with the Lord about? Or is he just my friend? I'm like, man, I just want him to be better. Why not both and? God, make yourself evident in the life of Aaron Bruski in Romania. The nurses, the doctors, his wife. What is she thinking right now? She's pleading on Facebook. Please pray for him. There's a funeral in Macon this afternoon for Mr. Ron, who used to sit there so many days, right? Dave and Shauna, the Bakers, Sean and Tammy's dad. Would I pray for them? Would I plead with the Lord to make himself so real to that family, especially today? So in my prayer for people here and other places... I need to learn how to plead with the Lord that he would be known in the lives of those people and the people around him. That's how my prayer life needs to change.
Back to this boy for a moment. We see Jesus cast out the demon. As he came out, the demon was crying out and cast the boy into a terrible convulsion one last time. And the boy looked like a corpse. People thought he was dead. Jesus healed him and gave him back to his father. The Lord showed the love, compassion, mercy, and kindness that is in the heart of God our Father for those who suffer. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This verb has the connotation of being driven out of one's senses with amazement. For those people in your life that are more reserved and conservative, laid back, quiet, can you picture them being driven out of their senses with amazement? I think Peter, James, and John saw that on the mountain. And these other people saw it down in the valley. So let me encourage all of us again. Do you pour your heart out to the Lord knowing that your only hope and everybody else's only hope is that God would work his will in your life or in their life? Do you plead with the Lord in your prayers? And that's not just a word. God, I plead with you. Are you amazed or astonished at God's display of love in your life and in the lives of others? Let's take a minute and pray. Heavenly Father, you are the creator of our bodies. And you are the great physician. You determine our days. You determine what happens to us during our days. Father, I beg of you right now that you would make your name great in Romania today by what you do in the body of Aaron Bruski. We ask of you to heal him today, that it would be a miracle, just like in this boy's life. This is what you do. Would you heal him and bring amazement to the people there? That Aaron would clearly communicate and testify that you are the one who has healed him. That the nurses and the doctors in that place would be out of their minds and this does not make sense. This does not happen this quick. We didn't think it would happen at all. So God, would you heal him right now? So that you would receive honor and glory in that place. Father, at this same time, we plead for others in this body who are sick and struggling and are tired of COVID. Their bodies just hurt. People like Sarah Robinette, 
who day after day after day have just been hurting. I beg of you today to heal her as well. That the people around her would just be, this had to have been from the Lord. And then in both of those situations, that people would see that you love them and you have compassion and you have mercy. May they see those attributes from you today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. While they were still marveling, Jesus has some words for his disciples. We're in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he, is, he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I'm picturing Jesus almost whispering it to them. Hey, guys. Let this sink in really deep. Listen carefully. He had already done this previously. He had done this in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here he is telling them again, listen. Peter, I know you had some ideas a little while ago, probably yesterday. They're like, wait, you're, no, no, that's not how it works. You're supposed to come and create your kingdom here, and we're supposed to be your right-hand men. They were told twice that his time was coming. Nobody speaks more clearly, clearly than Jesus And they didn't get it because their ears and hearts had not been opened to the truth. So when you share truth with other people and they don't accept it, they don't get it, don't be mad. In this case, God didn't allow them to perceive it. Why? I don't know. He was accomplishing something through all that. So when you're sharing truth with your neighbor your friends, your co-workers, and they don't immediately respond favorably to it, don't stop. Just continue to love them. That's what Jesus did to his disciples. Even when he says harsh things like, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Guys, you've been taught how to pray. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. And they were not willing to ask him about it. Jesus, I'm confused. I don't, I don't. Hey, guys. I ain't asking him. You going to ask him? I'm not asking him. You can ask him. I'm not asking him. Huh. Mm-mm. 
Do you expect people to grow spiritually at the same rate as you? The same timing as you? Your time frame? God might be concealing them, concealing something from them for a certain time to work all things according to his will. So then what is our responsibility? Continue to plead to the Lord on their behalf. How many times have you or I pled with the Lord to save our neighbor, our coworker, our friend? Do we pray for the salvation of those around us? Do we plead for the salvation of those around us? Or he's just hard-headed. He's not, he's not going to get it. Have we given up? Ask God to reveal his glory to them and then trust his timing. Trust his plan. Pray with faith, with confidence that God will accomplish his plan. And when you don't have the faith, you're struggling to have that confidence, ask God for it. It's supernatural. Faith is supernatural. It's not, I'm going to have enough faith to do this. I, I, I can't do that. And now we come to verse 46 through 50. The greatest. I can judge these guys so easily. They've just been told all of this. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Are you kidding me? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father. Jesus chose a child to illustrate humility. Children were viewed as the lowliest in society in the Jewish culture. So the child represents believers. Instead of spouting their supposed achievements, the disciples needed to humble themselves and admit they had no merit or accomplishment that would earn them entrance or elevation in God's kingdom. I think a lot of times we admit that I, I can't bring anything to the table to be saved, but it seems like sometimes we get into the the way we talk sometimes, it seems like, yeah, but I'm a little bit more spiritually mature than that person. They just, they just, just, I have no merit to raise myself up in God's kingdom. The disciples had just been in, quote, discussions, argument, about who was the greatest. And immediately God picks up a child and says, stand right here for me. Receive him. Receive the believers. We're the same. In other words, those who reject believers reject Jesus, and those who reject Jesus reject the Father. How believers treat each other is how they treat the Son and the Father. 
So how do I treat the other believers in this room? How do you treat the other believers in this room? Have you discarded another believer for any reason? I don't need you in my life. I don't need you. Go to your own life group. Who are you? Yeah, talk to me in weeks. I don't need you. What did they say or do that warrants you rejecting them and not speaking to them? If fellowship has been broken with another believer, humble yourself and do what you can to make things right with that person. Instead of, instead of seeking respect or honor from that person, consider them as more important than yourself and look out for their best interest, honoring the Lord through a restored godly relationship. We need to stop writing people off because they're not like us. Their personality's not like mine. They like different things. They get on my nerves. And we finish with 49 and 50. John tells Jesus about someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. So John's just heard this correction, and it appears like John's like, wait a minute, I might need to run this by Jesus. So Jesus said, a while back, we saw these guys, and they were casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them. Why? What does he have to say? Because they're not one of us. Because he does not follow with us. It's a little bit different. Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. The Baptists and the Presbyterians... Calvinists and Arminians, the labels that we put on ourselves. Is this person for Jesus? Yes. Then he's for you, not against you. I love the fact that we pray for, like Chris did just a few minutes ago, that we pray for other churches. We do that here on purpose. Do they have the exact same doctrine as us, all of them? No? That's okay. We want them to be successful too. We want God to work in their congregations as well. This isn't the perfect, this is the way every church should be. Churches can look different. Jesus' response to John does not seem to be very harsh or sharp. He simply states, do not stop him. And then he gives him some teaching. So as an application for this part, how do you view other believers who are not part of your group? What about the people that don't fall into your camp on an issue or whatever? Is that okay? Please hear me. I'm not advocating for a free-for-all. Whatever is right in your own eyes. You believe what you want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. 
Don't talk to each other. Leave me alone. Let me do my thing my way. No, all of us are striving to do things in his name, which means his way. I'm speaking of people who love the Lord and love his word. Pride promotes exclusivity, but humility promotes unity. Pride separates you and me. Humility will bring us together. May we be found to be humble servants of God our Father who plead with Him daily for Him to accomplish His will in the lives of people that we know and people that we don't know. I pray that we would be found to love the brothers and sisters in this local church and in the churches around the world. And to celebrate that, to remember that, here at South Point, we take communion every week. My prayer, the prayer of your pastors, is that it would never get old or routine to you because we do it every week. This is special. It's so easy for me to forget or to get off track during the week. And just like these guys needed to be reminded, seeing God's reminding of who Jesus is, and seeing some of the attributes of God through the healing. When I take communion, I need to remember what it is that Jesus has done for me. And that should humble me. I'm not joking with my neighbor. I'm letting other people come and get it. And as we gather, we're just quietly thinking about what the Lord has done in our lives. Each and every time we do this. Whether you meet as a group, meet as a family, just by yourself, I'm going to pray. If you're a believer, you love the Lord, you've surrendered to His Lordship in your life, then this is for you. Think about the bread and think about that His body was broken for you. And just pause on that for a minute. Thank Him for that when you gather with other people. And as you dip it in the juice, remember, it's His blood that makes us righteous before the Lord. He poured out His blood so that you and I wouldn't have to. And let that humble us as well. And let us be thankful for it. And let us go tell other people about that. So after I pray, you're welcome to come and partake in communion with us.